The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness, superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, to another episode of Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I am your co-host, Greg Mashansky, and joining me as usual is my partner in crime, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, everyone. And also joining us as usual is the supervising producer and co-creator of the series, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi, folks. And rejoining us is the writer of the episode we're about to talk about, Revelations, Mr. Carrie Bates. Hello, everybody. I'm Carrie Bates. I'm lighting's not too good here, but I'll try to, <laughs> you know, struggle on. It's an audio <laughs> podcast, Carrie. <laughs> well, there is well, there is going to be video on uh, Patreon for our Patreon subscribers. Which, if you want to join Spidey Dude Network at Patreon, so if you want to see yep. us on, video. yeah, somebody <laughs> has to be able to see this, right? <laughs> Okay, so um, this is a pretty significant episode. Well, most of the episodes are significant, but uh, we'll talk about the structure of this script. I mean, this episode dealt with, uh, was written in media res. You used a structure called in media res to tell the story. And and for those in Lingman terms, that means they start in the middle of the story. <laughs> story already in progress. Right. We started in the middle, flashed back to the beginning, and caught up to where we left off, and then proceeded forward from there. Yeah, I, I've done that a lot. I don't know if that was your idea or mine, Greg, but you know, I think it works. I think it was my idea because I felt uh, uh, that there was so much that needed setting up before there was any action, really, um, yeah. that it sort of helped to sort of, hey, let's start in the middle of this frightening uh, like action such sequence. Such an, an epic moment, too. Like, yeah, it was a yeah. good start. Oh, very much so. I really enjoyed it. And I like that you chose Matt Bluestone, who we've gotten to know very little so far to carry this story. I mean, that's actually a pretty daring movie. He's not one of the bigger characters on the show, but um, he was a strong enough character to carry his own story. Now, was it established that he was like a uh, conspiracy uh, aficionado or, or uh, you know, I, I saw a little bit of his background online, but I can't remember how much had been coming out in the episodes. Uh, yeah, we had clearly established him. Uh, Michael Reeves had from his very first appearances. Michael thought that would be a good sort of quirky character, character trait to make him, uh, you know, into all these conspiracy theories with the Illuminati being the big one. But it was also one of the th things that where Michael's like, you know, that Illuminati line, that was a throwaway. I'm like, no, no, I know you thought it was a throwaway. It's not a throwaway anymore. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have fun with it. Uh, you know, Loch Ness, whatever it was in the very first Matt Bluestone 
well, not his first appearance because he didn't speak in his first appearance, but the first episode where he spoke, Tom Wilson as Matt throws out, you know, I think a, a trio of conspiracy UFOs, things. UFOs, Loch Ness. Yeah. And Illuminati. I was like, okay, we're going to do, we're going to do all those. <laughs> <laughs> as you do. Matt, you're, you just, you just happen to be right about all of it. Yeah, Matt, you're right. So. <laughs> and Matt, I don't know the Matt answer is, to this. Oh. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I just going to say that there seems to be some throwbacks to uh, Silver Falcon, which I also wrote. But aside from the, I guess the Mace uh, connection is the most prominent one. Right. Yeah. I mean, we were very much, in a sense, picking up where we left off that, you know, Matt had learned some lessons out of the Silver Falcon episode. So he was no longer keeping his partner in the dark. Um, we had introduced Hacker in Silver Falcon. We, we didn't meet Mace, but we saw a photo of Mace and Mace is a sort of presence for Dominic Dracon in the Silver Falcon. So now we were finally meeting him, um, played by, uh, the amazing Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Uh, and, uh, so that we were definitely sort of taking that baton and running with it and it just made it easier because you had written that episode and so there was you know i didn't have to bring you up to speed on what happened in silver falcon because that had been yours mm-hmm. now I, I saw a thing online that i wasn't aware of at the time or i was and i've just forgotten but um the john steed emma peel connection with regard to the hotel cabal i either never knew that or i totally forgot it you definitely knew it. I mean, we talked about it at the time. Uh, it also may seem like I've got this phenomenal memory, but I actually uh, looked up my old notes. So I I have no memory, but I read what I wrote back then. And we talked about this episode of the Avengers. And again, by Avengers, we're talking about uh, John not, Steed and Emma yeah. Peel, not like <laughs> Captain America. Um and there was an episode of that TV series called The House That Jack Built, or it was called something like that. I mean, and it was this basic idea of spies get stuck in this house and the house is, has room after room after room. And some of the rooms are very surreal and some of them are very dangerous and some of them are both. And, um, and the idea is that it was used to sort of break people, you know, they, they couldn't escape, they couldn't get out and they just kind of go nuts there. And, and as I like to say, we homage the hell out of that episode in Revelations, <laughs> which is a nice way of saying that we stole things, but anyway. But no, I really like Matt and I, he's just, uh, I mean, I know he came from the time when Fox Mulder and the X-Files were a household name, but um, he also distinctly feels like his own character and, I remember a couple of years ago, there was a little bit of a, I'm not going to call it a controversy, but someone then asked Greg raised a concern, especially considering how sinister in recent years, conspiracy theories have gotten, let's be honest, how anti-Semitic a lot of them have gotten. And, um, so, and they asked you about your responsibilities as a storyteller when it comes to using things like the Illuminati in stories. And one of the things he pointed out was you subverted things by having a Jewish character chase this uh, society, which we later find out is run by the Welsh, but. (laughs) (laughs) 
those Welsh. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know. I mean, I knew Matt was Jewish, but uh, I don't even recall if that topic came up back then. You know, I mean, conspiracy theories today are so incredibly damaging. And I'm not saying they weren't back then, but I don't think we had the kind of awareness that we did. I mean, look, I knew about the elders of Zion back then and, and stuff, but I didn't connect that up to something that to me was as fantastic as the Illuminati society. I firmly believe that there is no single society running the world because the world is such a fucking mess <laughs> that I don't believe that there's any one mind behind what's going on right now. I think it's uh, a, too big of a cluster fuck for um, any one person or any one group to be running things. Um, uh, at minimum, it would be more cohesive. Um, but the idea in, in fiction again, borderline superhero fantasy sci-fi that such an organization exists, you know, to us, that's like Spectre and James Bond or Hydra for the Marvel universe or something like that. It's not on the order of the elders of Zion or something like that. And um, that's a, at least it wasn't for us back then. And also, again, the notion that that was, uh, the Illuminati was associated with Jews. I'm sure I didn't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't even, first off, it, if you go back to its origins, it clearly wasn't, you know, the, the Freemasons. Wasn't and it the, connected to the Masons? Uh, the yeah, the, like, it was connected to the, the Masons and the Freemasons. And, you know, and if you go far enough back to, you know, the Crusaders and stuff like this, this is, you know, and even, uh, Adam Weishaupt wasn't a Jew. Um, it, it just goes back much further than that. Obviously, you know, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, not Jews. Um, and, Notoriously uh, not Jews. So, you know, all the Illuminati myths that I knew of weren't Jew-oriented. And keep in mind, here. in case it's not obvious from my last name, uh, I'm Jewish. So um, uh, that was not, I don't think that was something that even occurred to me as being problematic. And again, I viewed the Illuminati society as such a clearly fictional, I'm not saying that there wasn't some point in history in Illuminati society, maybe there was, I don't know. There were definitely Freemasons, uh, Masons, you know, Crusaders, all that stuff. But from the standpoint of, modern day 1990s that was so clearly fictional to me again i viewed it as something along the lines of hydra or something along the lines of specter um not something along the lines of uh you know well the elders of zion um and uh so mostly i'd say that stuff didn't cross my mind now if someone asked me about it 10 15 years later and I've got to justify myself, um, you know, I think the way I answered that is fairly straightforward, but uh, 
I don't know how much of that I was thinking about back in 1994 or three or whatever year we were writing this. No, I agree with you. I don't believe in any of these secret societies either. Vandal Savage is not real, people. <laughs> so right. um, shout out to Young Justice fans who might be listening. <laughs> and now um, let's talk about the voice cast in this, because this episode is mostly carried by guest stars. We've talked about Tom Wilson as Matt Bluson before. Now it'd be a great time to talk about him again. Obviously a phenomenal talent, best known probably still as Biff from the Back to the Future trilogy, but it's not done... real manure. <laughs> We're gonna play the song during the credits. <laughs> uh, Tom was uh, a joy to have in the booth. I mean, I loved him. I used him on Max Steel later as Max's best friend because I just—he was so much fun. I just wanted to be around him. Um, he is so funny. I mean, just he can't help it. Um, and so constantly cracking us up. And um, and then, you know, getting down to business, he's so good at every aspect of his craft. So when going into this and when Carrie and I were talking about it and coming to the decision to have Matt actually do this sort of noir-esque narration, um, you know, I had every confidence that Tom would knock it out of the park, which is exactly what he did. Um, he's uh, just that good. And and he does all sorts of nuancing great stuff here. He gets furious with Elisa. He gets sad. He gets paranoid. He gets um, jokey. He, he gets, I mean, he runs the gamut in this episode. And he also does this film noir narration that plays fantastic and Carrie gave him good words to say without a doubt but you know at some point the actor can either pull it off or 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 they can't and and Tom could how did you get uh, Ephraim Zimbalist I know we've had this I mean last time on Silver Falcon I was impressed by the Darren McGavin uh, get but was he a problem or his agent called or how did that work well, that's a really a question for Jamie Thomason, who cast and voice directed it. Um, Jamie just sort of said to us, what about Ephraim Zimbalist? Now, at the time, uh, Ephraim had done or might even was he he was probably done by that time. or um, But he would played Alfred for uh, yeah, yeah. Batman, the animated series, mm-hmm. you know, and was great at that. Um, and we thought, well, we wouldn't want to cast him as a butler again, you know, but the idea of taking that elder statesman kind of voice and twisting it to, you know, to a guy who enjoys his job, which is a pretty evil job, you know, um, that felt like, okay, we're not doing dead on what he did with Batman, but you know, what a talented guy. So it's like, Jamie's like, how about Ephraim Zimbos Jr.? And I'm like, yeah, please, (laughs) you know, and you know, for me, I go back, uh, you know, I knew Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. from his years of doing the FBI on TV. And even further back, you know, he did, I was a huge Maverick fan. And um, I, I can go I, back further than that. 77 Sunset Strip. Yeah, I'm not, even I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> we finally gotten someone here who's older than me. 
Enjoy in that life, case, man. In that case, yeah. newer, newer than that, because at the time he was doing this, also he was doing Dr. Octopus in the 90s. Spider-Man, Spider-Man cartoon. Yeah. yeah. The animated and series, he, yeah. And he so was he was doing, the, the point is, he was doing voice acting in those days. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying that's all he was doing, but he was doing voice acting. And so it wasn't like, how is this possible? He was doing it. And we uh, got lucky enough to get him for this episode. He was absolutely mm. amazing. Yes. And he was also one of the main villains of the fourth season of Babylon five around this time. So he's, he was working a lot in the States. <laughs> so, um, but you know, he was terrific. And, um, Michael Bell, a veteran voice actor who's been around doing in the business since the seventies. I think I know he did a lot of work in the eighties. He was Duke and GI Joe among other roles. And, um, my brother wants me to bring this up. He was Raziel in this fantastic video game series, Legacy of Kane. Jen, yes, he was. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, Michael Bell's a fantastic character actor. Um, and, uh, you know, again, you bring him in and he, I mean, this goes back to Silver Falcon again, because that's where the character premiered. But, you know, he, sort of instantaneously got the character, gave a take on it. It just feels like, hey, this is a decent guy who's just trying to help Matt out, a little worried about Matt and Silver Falcon because he hasn't shown up, a um, little concerned because Matt can get a little nutty about this Illuminati stuff, and then, you know, turn on a dime at the end without changing his delivery or his demeanor, and suddenly it's like, Oh, you're one of the bad guys. Um, and and Michael just did that. I mean, we got a great guest performance in this episode out of Ed Asp as yeah. Jack Dane. Mm-hmm. Jack Dane was totally Jack Danforth slash Jack Dane was totally a throwaway character initially. And then Ed was so good in this one scene he has as, as Jack that I'm like. Oh, we are bringing this guy back. <laughs> um, Find I a way. Love, he's coming back. Uh, I love this. If you see him, tell him I said he's a bum. You know? <laughs> um, love it. <laughs> and I'm like, this is so great. Uh, we have got to bring that back. Uh, and, you know, Hudson only has like one or two lines in the whole episode. But, um, you know, it's it's interesting to me because you know, we try, uh, you know, because of cost, we couldn't have everybody speak in every episode. So one of the things we tried to do was sort of spread the wealth between our um, leads, but supporting leads. I mean, Goliath is in there pretty much every time, not literally, but almost every time. And Elise is in there almost every time. But Brooklyn, Lexington, Broadway, Hudson, Bronx, we had to, you know, that's five characters and that's a lot to carry every single episode. Um, and then when Angela comes in later this season, that becomes six. And there just isn't uh, the money to, you know, we did all of them in plenty of episodes, but you have to save here and there. So I noticed this was an episode where we spread the wealth to Tom and Ed, not so much to Bill and Jeff. Uh, uh, <laughs> but what that meant is that, you know, okay, we've got this one extra character in Jack Dane. Who can we have do it? Well, Ed can do it because what Ed's doing for Hudson is so specific, plus the Scottish accent that when he goes and does 
say, we want you to play a New York gangster, an ex New York gangster retired. Um, and again, Ed being Ed, he gets that in three seconds and just delivers something that's so good that it's like, oh, wait, this was the throwaway. Nope, not anymore. Not anymore. Mm-hmm. Now we love this guy. <laughs> awesome. And speaking of voice actors, we also meet here for the first time on a show at Lisa Gabrielli filling in for Rachel Ticotin, which does make me wonder, what is the usual protocol when a voice actor isn't available for their normal character? Well, uh, back then, I mean, like, I don't remember the specifics of this incident, but in general, we always tried to use uh, our people. You know, we didn't want to recast ever. Um, We didn't want... uh, so, you know, as I think I've mentioned before, and I don't remember if that was true for this episode specifically, but for a chunk of season two, Keith David was in New York because he was in a show on Broadway, Seven Guitars. And so we would do what we call the phone patch. And actually, I usually, because Jamie was directing the main cast, I usually directed the phone patches, um, not always, but but usually, um, of Keith from uh, New York. Now we could do that for anyone. And if we needed to, we would, but that starts again to start racking up the bucks. It's just more expensive. Um, And so I don't remember if that was the case. My gut though, is that we probably, if we could have jumped through a hoop or two to get Rachel, we would have, and Rachel comes back later in the season. It's only this one episode. We needed Maria Chavez in the episode and for whatever reason and whatever our time frame was, um, and again, I don't remember why, it's just been too many years, but uh, Rachel was unavailable to us. Now, if you're talking about more modern times, particularly nowadays when it's you know, post-pandemic or during the pandemic when everyone's recording from everywhere and we're not having cast recordings because, you know, disease flying around and stuff like that. And so everyone's recording from uh, individually. It's actually way more flexibility in terms, and also the technologies advanced to the point where people can record from anywhere and it doesn't matter. It doesn't, you know, it's adding, it, uh, it adds incrementally to the cost, but it's, it's the difference of adding, you know, thousands of dollars versus literally adding pennies. Um, so, you know, in general, we would tend to, again, jump through the hoops, but every once in a while, an actor would be seriously unavailable to us. Um, and if we thought we could pick them up later by doing ADR, we would do that. Uh, that happened with us in season three with both Alan Tudyk and Bruce Greenwood, who were not available when we needed Green Arrow and Batman, but um but said, yeah, we'll be available. You know, we'd say, well, would you be available by, you know, four months from, oh yeah, sometime in there would we'd be available. And so we, we ADR'd them. But then every once in a while you get a person who basically, for whatever reason, availability or uh, illness, uh, whether that's uh, Tim Curry or uh, uh, where, or, they just have moved on and they're not interested in doing the show anymore. Um, you know, and we recast, um, but we don't do that lightly. 
uh, ever. And certainly back then, it was just clearly like an emergency. So Elisa's great. Elisa's always great, Gabrielli. Um, and uh, we had loved her way back when during the audition process. Uh, she was a finalist uh, for Elisa Maza. Um, back when Elisa Maza was Elisa Chavez. Um, and, uh, you know, she wasn't quite right for that character. And obviously Sally Richardson is irreplaceable in that role, but, uh, but, you know, we knew Elisa Gabrielli back then. I think she went by Penciler Gabrielli, although she doesn't anymore. Um, uh, was terrific. So, you know, we needed someone to fill in for Rachel and we brought Elisa in, but the hope was, you know, that, and we did, we eventually cast her later in the season uh, as another character that would really be hers. So uh, unfortunately that character wound up being a one shot because we never got a season three um, or we didn't. Um, but, you know, the idea was, is that, she helped us out in this one. Then later we gave her a character that was hers as opposed to her just going in for Rachel because Maria was really Rachel's character. And she's fantastic. And here's a question, an observation I've made, and I wonder if this comes down to the script as well. So Carrie, feel free to answer this as well. One of the things that I liked about this episode that I noticed is in a lot of the scenes where Matt is conferring with people, both with um hacker at the beginning and at the end and then with and then with uh, mace malone on the boat there's a lot of extras in those scenes like they're talking about the super secret conspiracy stuff and we pan out to see these wide shots of people going about their business not knowing that this thing is amongst them well i don't think that would have been me that's probably more gregor the uh director right it's probably more frank yeah um uh, but i think that you know, we were trying to hold these various meetings in locations where you could believe that the conversations would be, would not be overheard for one reason or another. You're alone in the park, no one's around, or you're on a boat, there's a lot of noise and you two are standing right next to each other talking relatively quietly. You can believe that, yeah, there are other people around, but there's no way they could have heard what was being said. Um but I think the decision of when to have extras and uh, that is, you know, non-speaking, non what we call ND characters, ND standing for non-descript, um, meaning in essence that they're not in the script, um, but they're just around. Those choices generally fall to some combination of the storyboard artists and ultimately, though, you know, the buck stops with the director, which in this case was Frank. But still, it was a brilliant script. And Carrie, I love the converse. I love the way you just uh, build up Matt as a detective. I love seeing the detective work really be shown. It's shown logically. And the way he tracks down Mace Malone makes sense. And, a, and it's clever also because even Hacker says at the end, they didn't see that coming. Didn't think he would get there. Yeah, you I don't count. remember many of the specifics of the uh, actual dialogue scenes because, you know, it's been a couple of minutes, but um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
No, I mean, it's a sweet script. It's really lovely. Um, you know, you've got these great scenes uh, in the middle. Um, you know, one of the things I love about our show is we can actually do a cliffhanger where the threat is Matt Bluestone. You know, he is so upset. Is he actually going to drive them off the cliff? Um <laughs> How dare he mess up Elisa's car, man? <laughs> um, and then the scene that, I mean, I, I love the bit where, I mean, to me, this is met. I mean, this is very meta, but I love it is this bit where she goes, You've been so quiet. You haven't said three words to me. And then he says, Let me drive three words exactly <laughs> um, and, nice uh, job carry love it <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I counted them out a couple of times to make sure i was right <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so true um anyway uh and then the scene that they have once they've gotten out of there and he is screaming to the heavens you know um and and you know all but daring the gargoyles to show up. And then she comes up and he's sure that, I mean, he knows she's lied to him. He's known that um, for most of the episode at this point, because um, he just happened to catch her in this lie about the, you know, mopping up the ladies locker room. Um, so, but he's like, basically says something like, I know you're going to say I'm crazy. In essence, what he's saying is you're just going to lie to me again. And then, she in this really small voice again. Sally is so good. Just sort of says that they don't follow me everywhere I go. Um, you know, yes, I'm acknowledging that what you're saying is true, but in fact, no, they're not actually here right now. <laughs> um, so quit trying to drive us off a cliff. Yeah, um, not a smart move. Um, so, and then you know, they get back to the station. They're you know they were far out and they drive back to the station by the time they get there it's dawn so she knows it's too late and he's like you're just trying to put me off again and she's like i'm not i just meet me here at this time and then even when they get outside you know up on the clock tower and she walks him outside and he sees these statues he's like you're gonna try i i know they're not statues i've seen them they <laughs> they move they and she's just like wait for it you know <laughs> or give them room or whatever she says and then he sees that and one of the things that um we did talk about and i know this from the memo that i read last night um from back in the day is that we wanted to see them both wake up from stone and turn to stone, but kind of from uh, Matt's point of view, not literally a camera eye point of view of Matt per se, but just the idea of this is something that Elise is used to. And frankly, our audience is used to at this point, they've seen them turn to stone and wake up from stone many, many times. But if the audience sort of sees it again, from the point of view of someone who has not seen it before from the, with the idea that Matt is seeing this from the first time, you're reminded of just how magical those two processes are. Um, and I really think, I think the waking up from stone is pretty good um, animation wise, but I really think at the end of the episode, when they turn back to stone, that 
the animation is really good for that. Yeah. And, and, um, and it really reminds you just how cool and magical it is when, uh, those gargoyles transform like that. I, and, um, and again, Tom's reading where all he says is, wow, you know, when it's over and obviously way better than what I just did is just <laughs> layered with all this, you know, he's got one word to get this idea across without shouting, Whoa, oh my God. you know, he does this really subtle read on this one word that gets all that wonder and all that magic across. Um, and uh, and then you have this great conversation between the two of them about, you know, so why did, why did you hide from, you know, did you really not trust me? And, and she sort of has to cop to something that we'd been thinking about for a long time, but we hadn't explicitly said in the episode. I mean, we, it goes back to, you know, her brother's keeper. Why was she so reluctant to tell her own brother about the gargoyle she found excuse after excuse not to tell them and and until it was too late you know until in essence xanatos had scooped her um and she admits this thing which is that there was something about being the only one who knew that made her feel special and and if she was being honest with herself she didn't want to give that up and i just again think that that sentiment is very human. And, and of course, Sally's reading is, is so lovely that it, it's hard to be mad at her. <laughs> Even mm -hmm. though it's caused all sorts of problems. Over yeah, it has. <laughs> it has. I mean, I've got thoughts on that. And I think it's appropriate that this comes right after Outfox where Goliath makes his second friend in the modern world. So it's, um, no, the timing there was was perfect. But um, and Carrie, thank you for those scenes as well. But let's circle back to Matt's meeting with Mace Malone in the cemetery. It, just great stuff, and playing out the tattoo on his hand, and then the Illuminati immediately becomes impressive when we he described Xanatos, who we had already known was a member <laughs> as a lower echelon member. I remember perking up at the time and thinking. Who are the higher members then? And it only took about uh, over a decade to find out. But <laughs> well, like, and, but you got to think like Mace is a hundred years old, you know. Like, so clearly the, the you're going to get older as you go up up the ladder. And he's just a Xanatos is just a young boss still. Yeah, Greg, I don't know if that was you or me or somebody else, but I was never aware of a Illuminati. Uh, ageless uh, serum. Is that something that's mythology or did we just make that up? Well, I think the idea was that um, we had this gangster from the twenties. How do we justify him, you know, still being, uh, I think it was, it began as a from necessity kind of thing, but we also, uh, you know, Matt says, they're giving you rejuvenation drugs. That's how you're doing it, right? You know, it, he, and Mace doesn't confirm it. He doesn't deny it, but he doesn't confirm it either. He just sort of says the funny line, you should see the dental plan, you know, which is such a Carrie Bates line. 
mean, I just thought that's like quintessential Carrie. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, and it's a great line, but it's also, I mean, what's great is it, it's, it serves like three purposes. It's funny. Um, but, uh, and it seems to confirm the kind of thing that Matt is talking about, but in fact, it does the opposite. It obfuscates. I mean, hell, we don't even know if there really is a dental point, yeah. you know, um, because the way it's read and the way it's said, um, it could just be, Hey, I'm changing the subject now. We're not getting into that. Um, so are there rejuvenation drugs? We have not confirmed that one way or the other. Um, that was Matt's idea. And Matt at that stage, especially he's an outsider guessing, you know, he may have some evidence that suggests something, but he doesn't know. And Mace does not confirm it. He talks about something seemingly related, but really not really, you know? So the truth is yet to be revealed in the, in the IP. Interesting. And then we've got the the Hotel Cabal itself. Wasn't that supposed to be a tie-in with Walt Disney World's Tower of Terror? It was originally, yeah. Uh, In, uh, I want to say, yeah, September of 1994, a handful of us uh, were sent down to Walt Disney World for this Tower of Terror event. It was myself, Keith David, Marina Sirtis, Sally Richardson, um, and my boss, Gary Kreisel. And we went down there to piggyback off this big press event for the opening of the Tower of Terror uh, attraction at Disney World. And we had our world premiere, not our television premiere, but our world premiere at Pleasure Island. And I know I've talked about what happened that night there, but after our world premiere, we went to the park and we, you know, went on, you know, had dinner, went on a few rides and among them was tower of terror, which was opening for the first time. And, you know, uh, because we had celebrities with us, we got to cut the line and go in and, and ride it. And it was fun. And the idea was synergy company synergy. So can you write tower of terror into the show? Sure. Uh, but you're telling us now and all the scripts for season one are written already. <laughs> You know, so not in season one, but we can do it in season two. So the idea was to try and uh, take the Hotel Cabal concept, and we had didn't have the name yet. I think we were calling it Hotel Hollywood or something like that, which was the name of the uh, hotel in Tower of Terror. Uh, it is. It is. I was just down there in September. Hollywood Hotel or Hotel Hollywood? Hollywood Tower. Hollywood Hollywood Tower. Tower. Okay. So we were taking that name um, and applying it to this and then also laying across it that house that Jack built idea from the Avengers. And and we'd have this nice synergy. You know, is the house haunted? Is it all bullshit technology? What, you know, that was the synergy idea. but, you know, we were a year too late. <laughs> uh, and 
though they had told us to do this, you know, I told them, you know, we're not going to be able to do it in season one. We can do it for season two. And they said, yes, they didn't say no. They said yes. But then when push came to shove, they were like, what are you doing? You can't connect it up to that. I'm like, you told me to do that. Well, we're not doing that. Okay. So then it became the hotel cabal, which frankly for us is a better name makes more sense. Um, you know, Hollywood Tower in New York doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, no. But, mm-hmm. you know, the idea was that if it had been a big hotel in the 30s, maybe in the 30s, Hollywood was such, you know, it's like, you know, uh, in Las Vegas, no one actually thinks the Venetian is in Italy. You know, I mean, it, it's just we're taking the name. So I could buy, I could justify in my head that the Hollywood Tower might be in New York. Um, and they isn't were just taking it, a glamorous name. Isn't there? No, it's it's Hollywood Hotel that it's like looks like that's in Hollywood. Well, there's one called the Bradbury Hotel. It's in a lot of TV shows. It's, it's like Art Deco. I'm not sure where it's exactly. Well, there's the located. Bradbury. There's the Bradbury Building. I I think that's what you're talking about. Um, Maybe. Yeah, the Bradbury Building you see all the time. It's in Bosch. Uh, it's been in hundreds of things um, because it's it, it's actually not that impressive from the outside, but in that case, the building, in, the interior of that building is world famous. Uh, it's called the yeah, Bradbury yeah. Building. <clears throat> that Ryan Murphy series, American Horror, one season was set in a hotel that I believe might have been those interiors. There, that, There you know, is they, a Hollywood Tower Hotel. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, so, and legitimately, yes. And some of those rooms, Carrie, you must have gone to town in the script, but some, because some of those rooms in Hotel Cabal are just so over the top that they're both terrifying and absurd at the same time, but in the best possible way. My favorite being that one room we got a glimpse of with the sharks in them. The shark room is my favorite room! <laughs> <laughs> I want to That's see Goliath problem. fight Jaws. <laughs> you got to have a shark. Probably could take him. That's again, that might be Frank. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, a lot of those actual visual gags. I'm not sure that was something that was directly out of my script. It might have been, but that had to be fun were. to just come up with, you know, torture rooms like that, like just crazy stuff. That would have been a blast. Some of them were in the script, and some of them were probably. Yeah, the storyboard artist or Frank or somebody coming up. With yeah, but if if, you, if I had to say, I'd say there's nothing they could throw at Goliath that he probably couldn't survive one way or another, and he could have probably stayed in there for like five weeks and still not been broken. Well, maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay, eat. four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it, it is such a cool idea, especially the way the keys work. That was I feel that like was those cool. Keys that... were ahead of their time. That was really cool to to. Uh, I just I just love that he gets trapped in the hotel in the end. Yeah, that was fun. That was great. I do think the keys were have your time. The idea of a key that you just hold up and it opens doors for you, uh, like some sensor reads your key. Like now, it's like well, yeah, duh. But back then, no, that's not how keys work. You had to stick the key into the lock. You had to turn it. <laughs> so I thought it was. Uh, uh, ahead of its time yeah prescient almost yeah very much so and 
then we find out that Matt didn't betray Goliath after all. And that scene always makes me wins for two reasons. When they fall down the elevator shaft and Mace just grabs the cables mm. with his bare hands. I yeah, that makes me wins too. And then he jumps on the broken glass when he gets to the top. And... <laughs> yeah. He's a tough dude, okay? He is, but also our storyboard artists are just sort of doing what they're doing. <laughs> just like <laughs> we're like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> and Jenny just mentioned that um I also, and I agree with you that I love that Mace in a lot of ways is left to a fate worse than death. I mean, he doesn't come back after this. No, but I'm assuming he's still in the hotel if he's alive. <laughs> I'm assuming that he's still in the hotel, even if he's not alive. Well, okay. <laughs> Point. Okay, that's a spinoff series for sure. <laughs> the Hotel Cabal. <laughs> Weekend with Mace. <laughs> I'm guessing... Mace is very quiet these days. <laughs> He's lost a little weight, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we've already talked about the uh, scene where they turn back to stone and Elisa's confession. There's a scene that right there that always kind of makes you wonder what's happening from Chavez's point of view because all of a sudden she sees Elisa <laughs> and Matt come out of a broom closet together, <laughs> says you two finally found each other, and then she kind of smiles as she walks over. Does she think something is going on between them that isn't? I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I, I'm happy to leave that to audience's imagination, but I think the surface level clearly is just, you know, she saw Matt yesterday and Matt was looking for Elisa. Oh, Okay. We found each other. Uh, and I don't think it has to go beyond that. But if fans want to think that Maria was thinking that, I mean, obviously it's not true. We know that factually that they're not a couple. But, yeah. uh, but uh, you know, if, she, if fans want to think that Maria was doing a little innuendo there, I'm okay with that. I'll leave that <laughs> to their interpretation. But maybe Maria writes I don't fan think fiction she, at night. I don't think she's worried about... <laughs> conflict between the two of them you know i don't think she's worried that whatever relationship they have is going to get in the way of their partnership because otherwise she you know she's tough enough to take them aside and say uh all right what's going on here you know and i don't think it's if she even vaguely thinks that it hasn't risen to a level where she thinks it might be a problem all right and then we've got that great confrontation, which we alluded to a little bit earlier, between Matt and Hacker. The uh, reveal that Hacker was a member of the Illuminati. I feel like it's one of those things I should have seen coming, but I specifically remember it taking me by surprise. It was really clever, really well done twist. And um, I just love Matt's reaction to that. And the moment that he's like, oh, I'm going to punch you. <laughs> Greg, did we know that all along, or was that something that came to us? Yeah, I, I read in the memo last night that, yeah, even back at Silver Falcon, we had planned for that. So okay. the trick was is that every time Hacker gave Matt a tip, he had to think it was a dead end. Um, and as he says, Matt impressed him because he Hacker gave him something that he was sure would be a dead end. And then Matt 
figured out a way to turn it into something real. Um, but certainly the tip that he gave him back in Silver Falcon was, in fact, Illuminati-wise, a dead end. It led to the whole Dominic Dracon plot that we had in Silver Falcon, but that had nothing to do with the Illuminati. Um, and, you know, it's not like um, hackers trying to stop Matt from solving crimes or anything like that or doing his job or whatever. He's just trying to, you know, throw up these screens so that Matt can't get close to the Illuminati. Um, and so he did that very successfully in Silver Falcon and this time less so, <laughs> um, uh -huh. but, you know, you really have to see the process of how Matt's mind worked in order to see how it was that Matt was able to take this tip from, from hacker, because as hacker says, and as in fact, Jack Dane confirms when Matt meets with him, Jack hasn't seen Mace Malone since the 1920s when Jack was a little kid. Um, and so, you know, the notion that Matt could somehow turn that around to find Mace is impressive vis-a-vis -vis Matt and kind of shocking vis-a-vis -vis Hacker. Never thought that you'd get anything out of this. So he seems helpful, but in fact, he's tripping Matt up every time. Sending, only this sending time. him on wild goose chases. Right. Mm -hmm. Only this time it works out. And, it, and it's such a great scene. And Hacker's so, despite being kind of short and average looking, he's so intimidating, even when he's just standing there eating peanuts and talking to the guy. And then obviously we get this promise that it's not over yet. And then I remember being shocked that the Illuminati never showed up again in the first two, in, during the second season. And uh, obviously we got a great deal of Illuminati later on in the SLG comic book to make up for that. And I have a feeling we'll be seeing them more in dynamite, but um, it, it was just a fantastic setup for more to come. And I'm glad, even though it took years to get there, we got some payoffs promises were kept. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, we had so many plot lines, you know, I mean, that was one of the great things about Gargoyles is that we were never worried about running out of ideas. It was always the opposite. We've got, you know, 300 ideas. We've only got 12 episodes left. So which ones are we going to surface? Maybe we'll combine these two. Um, you know, there were definitely episodes where, you know, I had all these cards on the wall and we'd have our writers meetings and I'd and someone would say, well, you can actually combine these two. And I'm like, okay, great, let's do that, you know. But um, it was never like, you know, screen time was precious, and so, and we always had way more ideas than we had time to to address them all. And the idea was that we'd just get around to all of them eventually. But you know, the Illuminati relative to the rest of season two wasn't a priority to get back to. It was because they would always be there, you know. It, 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 They've been around for centuries. They're still going to be there. So if, you know, if we don't get to that right away, but, you know, what's Thalog going to do next? Well, that we've got to address now, you know, because mm -hmm. he's not going to wait around, um, but the Illuminati would be there. So that allowed us to back burner that plot line until the SLG comic. But I don't think that uh, was damaging. And it didn't mean we weren't interested in that uh, story. It just meant that, you know, the end of the day you only have so many episodes and each episode has only so many minutes and 
you can't cover everything you might want to all at once. So you have to prioritize. All right. We can begin wrapping this up. Carrie, do you have any final thoughts on this episode and writing this episode? Um, well, it's more of a trivia question because I saw that scene where Matt gets to see the stone process, uh, you know, starting and stopping. And it occurred to me, Greg, you probably know this, when a gargoyle loses the uh, ability to be human, do they have to freeze in the same pose they were the day before, or does it just depend on what they're doing at the time? Well, I'm thrown by the phrase human. Um, I mean, you know, so that, breathing. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, they freeze in whatever position they are at that moment. Now, we had, again, these are cost issues. Um, we often cheated a little and had them strike poses that they'd struck before. And, and in universe, I find that believable. The idea was, in fact, for them to strike a scary pose because you want to scare off potential predators, potential attackers, potential people. So you want to look as scary as possible. It's just like any animal, you know, that flares its feathers or, or the fur ruffles and so, you know, you want to look frightening to, to get potential enemies to run. So the fact that they strike similar poses episode after episode in universe makes some sense to me, but out of universe, real world, it also was an economic issue, you know. You I, just I, I kind designing. of view it as like having a favorite, you know, position to sleep mm -hmm. in. Like <laughs> I'm a back sleeper. I, I have my claws out. Well, I, I go uh, one step further and make it analogous to Clark Kent's secret identity. In other words, they know people are going to see them as stone statues, and if you know somebody notices that, you know, on on Thursday the right arm was above the left part of his head, and on Friday it's over by his waist. I mean. That would be very suspicious. So it, it, it could just be logically that we got to have a, a stock pose so no one starts wondering why these stones are moving. I think that makes a lot of sense in the modern world. It didn't make a lot of sense in the medieval world. And so the question becomes, um, you know, did they, once they got to the modern world, make this connection and, and sort of say, we should really try to do this? But it's also true that though there are sort of stock poses that each gargoyle has, there are a handful of episodes for each character where the pose is different. And certainly for Goliath, you get the big, you know, bold, claws out, you know, uh, teeth bared pose. But you also get the thinker pose, which he does all the time also. <laughs> so he has a couple of favorites. Um, and. So some of those uh, repeats are intentional and, and uh, uh, so they weren't too religious about it. And I think they also literally, you know, counted on the notion that, hey, we're way up here. People view us as stone statues. So nine times out of 10, people don't even look up. I mean, hell, if they looked up at night, where'd those statues go? Um, and certainly someone must have done that at some point over the, you know, three years from 94 to 97. Um, no but in New York looks up, what are you talking right, about? Yeah. You know, <laughs> liable to get a pigeon on you, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, I also think that 
you know, we did this with a jogger a couple of times where, you know, the jogger comes by in Central Park and sees Goliath's statue. It's like, I don't remember that statue being there. And then, you know, the next day he jogs by and goes, it wasn't, wasn't there a statue there? Uh, I guess it was somewhere else. Uh, I can't quite remember. Or if someone noticed that, like you were saying, Carrie, one arm is higher this time. You know, it's like, yeah, right. The statue moved its arm. Or do you maybe think you're misremembering? <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm misremembering. Nice. You know, I mean, it, you know, there's an element of. Statues don't move their arms. Like, yeah. How much can. do we really pay attention? You know, um, and we sort of at times, I think, take it for granted that, oh, wow, I really wasn't paying attention, you know, because the, the alternative answer particularly in the early years of the cartoon um, is so preposterous that of course there's, I must just be misremembering what other option could there be? Or doing really good drugs. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, do either of you have anything you'd like to plug? This is coming out in uh, May. May. All right. So four is in March. Five is in April. So Gargoyles number six. So you should have gargoyles one through five already, goddammit. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and gargoyles number six, uh, which in fact, as we're recording this, I am uh, writing. I am in the middle of page 18 writing the script for it. But in May, uh, gargoyles number six will be coming out. And uh, I hope you pick it up. It's uh, the halfway point in the here in Manhattan arc and things are getting dangerous. All right. And Carrie, do you have anything you want to plug that's coming out around me? Uh, nothing I can, no, nothing I'm allowed to talk about as the saying goes. Super secret. Ooh. <laughs> that goes with this whole, later. like, you know, identity, hiding his identity from us. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I want to th- thank you all for coming on thank you carrie for coming back on we'd like to talk to you again sometime and um listeners thank you for listening greg thank you for everything you do jennifer thank you for everything and join us next time for double jeopardy the first appearance of Thalog. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> thank you for listening to voices from the eerie a gargoyles podcast Powered by the Spidey Dude Radio Network, located at spidey-dude.com. If you like this show, then please listen to Spectacular Radio, based on the Spectacular Spider-Man animated series, which features some familiar voices. You can also find these great podcasts, Clone Saga Chronicles, Make Mine Mayday, Amazing Spider-Man Classics, The Sal Buscema Podcast, and Books of X. All of this and more on the Spidey Dude Radio Network. And please follow us on Twitter at From Eerie. That's From E-Y-R-I-E and join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Network for more exclusive content. Thank you. You should see the dental plan. 